Hello there and welcome to From Paper to Podium, brought to you by the Science in Sport Group, the world's leading performance nutrition company and home to the brand's PhD nutrition and science in sport. I'm Charlie Webster and I'm joined as always by my co-host Professor James Morton. In each episode, James and I delve into a subject within sports and nutrition with an athlete and an expert so we can share their secrets to success. Almost every athlete gets injured at some point or another. So in today's episode, we'll be talking about injury and recovery. We'll be speaking to rugby player Jack Willis about his devastating injury at the Six Nations and his rehab and how that's going, plus Professor of Molecular Exercise Physiology for all the expert advice, Keith Barr. Jack, I think that we can't speak to an athlete or talk about sports performance without actually coming across the topic of injury. I've, I've interviewed hundreds of athletes and no matter what you're talking to them about, injury comes up. So, I mean, I've personally, and I know James has followed your recent journey, but can you tell us where, what stage you're at at the moment of rehab? Yeah, unfortunately, as you say, I think it comes part and parcel with being a, being an athlete, um, injuries and I've had my my fair few um, in my my short career so far, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going quite well so far. So I I did my knee back in in February, tore my MCL, PCL, both meniscus, um, and and I'm sort of at a pretty good stage now, about four and a half months deep, and hopefully be looking to run in the in the next coming weeks. Really, that's the plan. But um, yeah, just take it day by day and, and nice and steady and, and yeah, hopefully keep keep progressing. I don't want to take you you back there, but just for our listeners, just as a reminder, you did mention it was in February. I remember watching it and England were beating Italy at the time in the Six Nations and you kind of went down and then immediately we knew as fans, you know, as viewers that you were in excruciating pain and you could hear you as well. If you feel okay to, what what was that moment like and what runs through your head? Is it pain, but then almost like, oh my God, how serious is this, my career? Like what flashes in your mind? Yeah, I think you run through quite a few emotions in a moment like that. I think first and foremost, as you say, it was, oh, this is this is sore. Something seriously happened that has happened here. And as I sort of was going, my knee was going down without being too graphic, there was a bit of a crunch and a pop. Um, and you hear things like that and you normally tend to know that, that that's serious. Got by the time I'd, I'd sort of hit the ground and, and was sort of rolling around in a bit of a dramatic fashion, but I was in a in a pretty bad way pain wise, and um, yeah, and then I think whilst I was on the floor, I just remember people sort of flooding around me, medical staff, and 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 seeing if everything's okay and what they can do to help. And I just remember thinking, I was like, here we go again. And uh, as I touched on a li- briefly, I've I've had a couple of injuries now, and unfortunately, when when I was twenty one, I. I tore my ACL and LCL and all sorts of my right knee. So I've been through this process before and and it was kind of the bringing up sort of uh, the the scars that I had behind from from last time and I had to go through it again. And it's, yeah, it's a lot to deal with. And it's weird how quickly your mind can work from from the instant of, of it happening. You mentioned that you've had multiple injuries. And when I was kind of thinking about talking to you, I just thought it must be so demoralizing sometimes um you know I think we as humans I I mean I can think of instances myself where things haven't worked and then something else hasn't worked something else hasn't worked and you just start to think what what am I doing wrong like almost like why me yeah no exactly that you hit the nail on the head really and and that was the big question I had when by the time I'd been stretched off got into the 
into the the physio room I just thought well why me again like I don't I didn't feel like I deserved this I feel like I've been I've, I've put I've worked hard I do everything right I'm I, I try and like to think that I'm extremely professional with the way I go about things on a daily basis and you just think I've ticked all the right boxes but but it's not happening it's not falling for me at the moment and it's a real it's a real shame I took a lot of positives coming out of my injury last time and I think I do reflect back now and think I appreciate every second I've got on the pitch a lot more than I used to. I think I learned a lot of lessons about my body and how to manage myself on a week-to-week basis. And also I learned that there's more to life than just rugby. That that it's not just it's not just what you do on a on a on the on the training field that's important. It's about having a really balanced lifestyle so that when you these things do come up, you you can keep yourself in a pretty good headspace and and not struggle too much mentally because last time I did get in a pretty dark place. Yeah, unfortunately, Jack, I've also worked with a number of athletes that have had serious long-term injuries. In, in fact, a couple of episodes, we actually had Chris Froome on, who had a, a crash that was it was almost fatal, the extent of the crash that he had. So it's just part and parcel of that highest level of sport. One thing I did want to ask you was, in the immediate aftermath of the second injury, at what point did you start to look forward? Because I remember with Chris, even even the day after that injury, when he was lying in the hospital bed and things had settled, he was already planning to get back to the Tour de France one day. And so how long did it take you to get ready to get back into that, I'm going to do it again mode? Yeah, yeah, well, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I think you have fluctu- I have fluctuations of, of that. So immediately I went, you go into a mode of, well, I, and I know this is something that I've never sort of lost really is, I'm desperate to to put that England shirt back on one day. Having done it in an English shirt and a big, big driver for me is with, uh, I know a lot of people have had much sort of serious, more serious consequences of, of COVID and, and affected much in a much worse way. But for me, uh, something I've always dreamed of is playing for England, but having my family there and being able to 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 go after that game and have a hug and a, and a kiss with them and, and just enjoy the moment and, I never, I've not had that and I've played, I've only played three games now, but all of them have been during COVID. And that's a big motivation for me to get back out there, to put that shirt on again one day and, and have my family there. And I think it does take a while for you to get into that mindset, but then immediate, immediately after that was always there. But then you go through this sort of lull period. I knew I had my, I had my operation 10 days after I did my injury. And in that period, it's a really tough, tough time to manage your mental sort of well-being really because you're just like you don't really start your recovery until your operation i i feel anyway because that's sort of your day day one is you had your you had your surgery and you go again there's definitely important things you can do along the along the way and and that sort of making sure that you're getting the healing process right get the swelling down keep the, the muscle bulk alive in and around the knee but you you don't have that that sort of real real get go attitude attitude until you've sort of had the operation. You go right. I'm I, I can see my path now back to recovery. Um, definitely. There's so many positives. You said you know take so many positives from from being injured before and bringing that forward. But you also said you know you've been in some dark places, and I think that's completely normal. And I know that you've spoken about mental health, and you're an ambassador for Brave Mind, and you've been documenting. I've been watching your little clips on Instagram of documenting your journey which actually your mom and dad were on and they were really upset about about what happened yeah. um like <laughs> listeners if you haven't seen that go and watch that clip because it's brilliant but I think often we we skip over what it actually feels like 
and again if you feel okay what can you describe to us those feelings because you know going back to that Instagram video there was shots of you where you look really low yeah I think I think I've I've managed myself better this time around um in a lot of ways but last time around there was points where I genuinely just couldn't see myself coming back to being a rugby player. Firstly, I was just like, how am I ever going to get back? I didn't feel that there was almost points where I didn't really want to get back because I just felt like as soon as I do, I'm just going to get injured again. You get into a bit of a negative spiral. And as you say, this time around, I just had a lot of emotions of, sort of why why me? Why has this happened again? I don't feel like I deserve it. And a lot of those questions were going around in my head. And I, and I think the worry and the anxiety I have around when I do eventually come back, that that could happen again in, in the first tackle I make, the first jackal, the first carry. I could get injured again. There's no guarantee to say, oh, well, don't worry. You can get 10 games injury-free and then you'll be all right. There's no guarantee in sport like that, unfortunately. So it's, it's bat- having that mental battle in your head. And, and I've almost forgotten that I was a rugby, rugby player for the first half of my injury and just gone, right, I've got other focuses in, in property outside of rugby. So I spent a lot of time on that. I'm focusing on spending time with my family, doing hobbies. like I like, love my fishing. So getting out and going fishing and just clear, keeping my head clear, really. And and now I'm probably getting to a point where I'm, I'm over halfway and I'm starting to think, right, I, I want to start to see myself as a rugby player again now. And I can turn on that mode. But but it definitely has helped me deal with it and cope a lot better this time around by just focusing on the other parts of my life that, that I'm, I'm grateful for. Yeah, and no, I think there's some great points. The line that particularly resonates with me is when you said, accept that there's no guarantees in sport. Because the reality is sport is the most unpredictable job in in the world Um, and I remember working with some of the Liverpool first team players a few years ago and we had our psychiatrist then Professor Steve Peters who was on our first episode actually of the podcast and when we used to work with the injured players back then a lot of it was psychology in those first few weeks those first few months and Steve would often be quite challenging because of course as you've mentioned you were worrying about, will I play rugby again? Will I have a career again? And Steve was always challenging in that he used to say, well, you might not. You might not have a career again, but what are you going to do about it? That makes me nervous. That makes me go, <laughs> no. Like, because I, I'm not that kind of personality where even say if somebody said that about my own career, I'd be like, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think what Steve was trying to to say there was to, to get players and athletes to accept that there is no guarantees and to have other identity and and fill your time with other roles. And Jack's already mentioned that to help him get through those early periods, he did spend his time doing other things. And then when he was ready to become a rugby player again, you then switched in the mindset. And, And I think there's a lot of lessons there that we can all take is that sometimes we do have to focus on other things to get us through that little period. And eventually we will come out the other side. Does that um relate to you jack i suppose what you were saying in terms of concentrating your family and fishing and trying to you know not obsess over over it in a way yeah no no it's spot on i think you can get so bogged down in in the in the detail on a daily basis of counting down the days to the, the this date of a game that you've set that's months out and months away that injury injuries and 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 rehab is isn't a straight curve up to a straight line up to recovery and full fitness. There's there's peaks and troughs throughout the whole way. So you just, I, I think I did that first time around when I was I was about 21 when I did my knee, and I was just obsessive over it day in day out, day in day out. And 
you just get so bogged down in it. And, and I think you become probably a, a worse person for it as well to the people around you and the way you treat others because you just make everything about you and your knee and, and your injury when actually you need to take a bit of a, a step back and have a bit of perspective on everything that's going on in the world, everything that's going on in other people's worlds around you and that it's not all just centred about around around your injury. And, and the tough thing is for us, if my knee, if I don't get my knee right, even this time around, if I don't get my knee right, my, my career is over. That's the way, that's the way injuries are. It's that harsh reality. So it is my life. It is my day. I wake up and the first thing I think about is my knee. I go to bed thinking about my knee and will it be okay? And you have those anxieties uh, around it. But as James said, you, you put these other coping mechanisms in place. You have these other focuses and, and that's what, that's what gets you through and, and keeps you on the right track, I think. How do you start to get faith in your body again and have confidence enough to go out there and play without being tentative? Yeah, I think I think that starts with with the the rehab um, and the, the actual physical side of things. First and foremost, you start to tick off a box that you, you didn't believe you could tick, and then all of a sudden the physio says, "Right, go on, try this, give this a go," and you, you're a bit tentative you say were you sure should I be doing that and they're like yeah yeah you'll be fine you give it a go and all of a sudden it feels really good and it's not sore and and it really does creep up like that it gets to a certain stage where every single day you're doing something new and you're exploring sort of uncharted territory really it is it's quite a cool phase and an exciting phase but equally it can be quite a nerve-wracking phase but you have to put a lot of trust in the physios and staff around you that they're doing the right thing and that confidence builds and then mentally you start to just you start to forget certain parts of the injury and and start to push some of those anxieties away uh I certainly did last time that once I once I'd done a few things with how I did the injury originally and it was okay and I survived it I was starting to think okay well my knee's got a chance at surviving this and then you just creep up and 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 repetition is sort of key and then you, you get to a point where both physically and mentally, you're, you you climb climb up the ladder to a point where you're you're ready to go, really. Yeah, I think as Jack says, Charlie, it's about breaking it down into those little small steps and and accepting that you can't do the things that you used to do straight away, but over time you will be able to. There's a phrase that we often use in sport at the minute during rehabilitation called um, "from control to chaos." And what that means, and Jack's smiling here because he's probably going through this at the minute. When he starts running in a couple of weeks, it will be very controlled. It will be very straight line running at given running speeds. Eventually, it will be chaos and he'll be asked to change direction with no structure. And once you get through that chaos phase, I'm pretty sure he'll start to have confidence in his body again. Yeah, I think you've hit hit the nail on the head there. All of a sudden, you... Yeah, you're running in very straight lines, very slowly and controlled. And you get your rest between sets, and then you, the physios and the S and C will put you in scenarios where you can't, you don't have time to think. Your body just starts to react again naturally, and you go in and going and going. And but in those moments when the adrenaline's pumping, you're, you're doing these other things where your mind's focused on the drill rather than what your knee's doing. That's when you get to the end of the session and think. Well, I just I just did all that and you and you haven't thought about it and yeah the confidence at that point just goes through the roof. James, you you wanted to have a bit of a chat about like muscle atrophy, which is where the muscle gets smaller. And tell me if I'm wrong, Jack, but one of your videos I saw you like kind of hitting your quad. And I and I presume that meant because your quad looked a little bit wobbly. 
<laughs> yeah, I was wobbling it's very the skin nice round. Still, thinking, but... Where's all this? Yeah, where's all this gone? But yeah, no, it's um, it's it is crazy how how the body works. You have to work so hard for so long to get to the point that you want to be at. But within three weeks of doing nothing, it can take it away. And it's like, well, you'd you'd hope that it would be the same level of of rate dropping that it does to to get to that point, but. Unfortunately, it does not work that way, and and that's where, as you say, well, James will, will go into more detail. But the nutritional side of it is so key during that phase where you can't load load up the muscle properly. Yeah, you need to really look after yourself in that area. Yeah, I think what one of the oldest training principles, Charlie, is the use it or lose it principle, and it's basically what Jack's just mentioned there. That unless you're using your muscle, in other words, contracting your muscle or exercising eventually you will start to lose that muscle mass. And the unfortunate thing with injury is there's been lots of research studies over the years where they've deliberately immobilized people. So immobilized one limb, kept the other limb, um, both lower and upper limbs. And you can start to see muscle atrophy or detect it even within days. So within days of inactivity, you can start to detect muscle getting smaller. Um, Several days later, then it will start to get weaker. So one of the things I did want to ask you, Jack, actually, was from a physical perspective during the onset of injury, what was like your immediate thoughts that you were worrying about from a physical perspective? And the reason why I asked that is, in my experience of working with football players, quite often their immediate physical thoughts was about body composition. Am I going to put on weight and lose muscle? Rather rather than thinking, right, am I going to get lose strength or lose fitness? It was pretty much all about weight. Yeah, am I going to get fat? Going to be skinny fat is the phrase that gets chucked Basically. around. Where you, yeah, your skin folds go up, but your muscle disappears. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a big old worry for for us. But as you say, it's probably a little bit backwards to to what we actually should be focusing on. But yeah, it's kind of ingra- ingrained in you slightly, and probably from a vanity point of view as well. For all athletes, they uh, they want to make sure in the best shape possible. I think that a lot of people could relate to that as well yeah I think I think a lot of people uh, go through that same sort of phase and I, I certainly saw I, I mean each athlete's different some athletes could sit on a sofa and and their weight goes through the roof without the meeting eating as much but for me I'm the opposite my weight goes goes down so I lose weight and have to keep the calories high but then you sort of get caught in that medium of well I don't want to eat too much and and overload it it's just a it's probably one of the most key phases to manage it when you're not exercising as regularly as you were before. It's become so much more difficult. Whereas when you're regularly exercising, you can find that balance over the course of time that that you know whether you're in a deficit or not and whether you're heading in the right direction. So how much yeah. did you have to change your nutrition? Because we actually spoke to Dylan Hartley on a previous episode and he was talking about that. How much did you have to adjust it then? Yeah, I think quite, quite significantly, really. I think but my nutritionist was... I think it was very much about making sure that every single thing that went in was the right the right type of food rather than I couldn't afford to have any anything that that was I guess you can you can you can have the odd fast food and have the odd snack here and there that's a little bit little bit sort of off the perfect line of of nutrition if you like when you're fit fit and healthy and you're exercising loads because it kind of gets mopped up with the amount of exercise you're doing but when you when you're lying on the sofa not doing anything at all, it, it, it can hit you quite hard. So it's about the right amount of food, uh, the right type of food going in, but then also probably slightly more food than I was eating before of the of those foods because the way he didn't want he didn't want my weight to go south because he knew exactly what I was like. 
and also the sort of mu- muscle atrophy as we've spoken about. So yeah, it's it's been a it's been a hard one to sort of balance out over this time. But now I'm starting to pick up the the exercise again. It's it's hopefully starting to get to an easier point. Did you actually lose much weight, Jack, during that period? Yeah, I lost about uh so when I came back in from from do, the day of doing my injury to the point of coming back in first day into the club, which was probably about a month in in total. So two weeks before my op, yeah, two weeks after. So yeah, probably about a month in total, I lost about seven, eight kilos. And then that does come back on fairly quickly. I mean, there's a lot of that that a few gym sessions starting to pick up your calories again and 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 it does it does come back. But yeah, probably only it took it took quite a while to get back up to that point. Um, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've made mistakes in the past before working with players. I remember working with one player did his ACL, and it, we were well. That player in particular was worried about changes to body composition and dropped calories too much to just probably around two thousand calories. And over the course of the first seven or eight weeks, where he was fully immobilized, like yourself, he lost six kilograms. Um. Then we, unfortunately, we got another player that had an ACL injury. And this time we actually measured his energy expenditure using something called doubly labeled water. And what we were able to show was that this player's energy expenditure was similar to outfield players. And so actually, because the player was doing a rehab session in the morning time, a rehab session in the afternoon time, of course, it wasn't as intense, but he was still engaged in activity. So so his calorie intake was pretty much identical to an outfield player. So my advice now is, is... beware of dropping calories too much because your body is probably requiring them more than what you think have you now yeah have you now had to up it quite a bit now you're getting back into things then yeah now that now the training sort of kicked off again and i think for footballers especially i think because of the amount of running they do as as well that's quite a surprise to hear that that those guys in in the um in the gym have a similar sort of calorie expenditure but for for us as rugby players i think a lot of the the impacts you get as a player can also cause the amount of muscle repair that's needed and therefore more calories. So that's the one thing that's probably slightly different is we don't have as, as many impacts, um, well, no impacts when I'm in the gym. I hope not anyway, unless anyone's got a scrap with me. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, there, there's that's one thing that's definitely slightly different. So you bear that in mind. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that. So on that note then, if you're thinking back to before your injury, how important was nutrition to you in terms of, you know, you got Premiership Player of the Season, you got into the England squad. Um, what areas do you think it really impacted you? I think I think I probably learned quite a few lessons when I did go into the England environment um, and realised the intensity that a lot of these players that are performing at the top, top level, the the, the levels of nutrition there, they put the detail in, in and around that and that was probably a big learning curve for me as well. First time I'd been in that environment and, and learned a lot, knew that I needed to, to sort of up my game really. I was, yeah, when I first went in, they were they were quite harsh on me and said, look, you you look at these other back rowers, this is where they're at, this is where you want want you to be. So definitely up my game after going into that and, and yeah, put a much bigger focus on it than I did before. Well, out of that, what do you think was the biggest thing you learned? For me, it was it was... Probably around how how to sort of load load my days and change the amount of calories I'm putting in with within each day. I, I think there's probably before going into that I would eat the same 
throughout the whole week. And and even if I was on a day off, it would be the same amount of food sort of going into that day than it would a training day. Uh, and I think dropping the carbs down when when I'm on a day day off or or a lower day um, compared to the days where I'm really sort of hammering it was yeah something that I learned quite quickly in the uh, yeah in that environment. Every athlete that we have on always tells the correct advice and it's the opposite of what you normally do yourself. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to any athletes, sports people out there that are suffering from injury or going through injury? I think well, it's what we what we touched on um, briefly earlier before about having other focuses and and having having other things that you can you can find a similar level of enjoyment from or and or a sense of achievement from and having having another focus whether that's whilst you're injured going out and doing a course that at the end of it you've got something to show for it and you can be proud of proud of yourself for something else because I think you do as an athlete you 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 unfortunately you're you're kind of programmed to constant feedback from people have you done well enough how you're doing but when things are going well you feel on top of the world because you're playing well. I think deep down, you know, if you're playing well or not or as well, and your family are telling you you're doing great and you get all this constant sort of praise. And then all of a sudden you're not getting that on a daily basis. You're not getting any feedback at all because it's just about getting, getting your knee right. And yeah, it's about, about having a, keeping a balanced head about when you come back from rugby, not taking, um, other people's feedback and, and praise necessarily don't let it go to your head keep a very level head throughout and that equally on the flip side negative press negative comments from fans as we've seen is is has been highlighted a lot in the press lately just try not to take it in a lot of the time because I think there's always going to be peaks and troughs of your career and people are, are going to jump on the bandwagon good or bad and and I think if you can keep a level head throughout all of that You'll, you'll definitely keep yourself in a much better head headspace. James, how much of uh, recovering from injury is mental and being able to cope like Jack is talking about? I, I think so much of it is, is mental, Charlie. Um, I, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, if you want to put a percentage on it, but I'm pretty sure it's it's close to 100%. Dealing with just, just accepting the fact that you're injured to start with and then building your plan, but that's... Um, it doesn't happen overnight, as Jack said, and he mentioned about getting through the surgery phase before he was then ready to move forward. But I think it does lead on to an interesting question, Jack. When you think of your support network, who do you think it really plays an essential role, both within sport and your home life, and in, in helping you to, to get through that little phase? I think from from my home life, my girlfriend and my brother um were were fantastic are fantastic during during my injured injured periods I've had and my girlfriend pretty much does everything for me when I'm in that early phase especially when I'm on the sofa she's changing my eyes for my ice machine cooking me dinners making sure I'm eating the right things um cleaning up after me with everything going on around me moving my machines around so I can complex at the right time and it, it, yeah facilitating my my optimal recovery so without her I'd be just sort of slouched on the sofa ordering deliveries and <laughs> hoping for the best um but then my brother as well I, I talked to him a lot I'm fortunate enough that he he plays at WAS with me um and and having him in the team is is pretty special to to, to lean on and and we're really close but then going back into the sort of club really it it depends on the, the the one that I've found has, has helped me most throughout all my injuries is the other injured lads around you. So it can obviously changes. It's not a go-to person necessarily. 
they're the only people really that truly understand what you're going through as well at that time. So you can really be honest. You can open up about everything you're feeling. You can moan about your injury. You can moan about the the physios or any anything like that. Just little things that you're like, oh god, we, I want to do this today. I want to do that today. Oh, they're they're holding me back. We but not. And then you you know you have these back and forth always. And you you're probably wrong half the time. And that's just the way it is. But you you want to have someone to have a good sap to and have a bit of a moan and go. This is just how I feel at, at this time, and, and and injured players around you at the moment. Unfortunately, our club captain Joe Launchbury, he's he's with me, but, but we've been spending a lot of time together, um, trained over the whole off season together on a pretty much a daily basis. And yeah, without without him, I would have been on my own training, and it, it does just make a big difference. You, you you go into a yeah sort of protective mode of looking out for each other and and just trying to get yourselves back to to full fitness. I suppose yeah. like we can all we can. Em- empathize but it's only you that really knows what it feels like I actually read an article about him and he he said that his overwhelming feeling I don't know whether he's mentioned this to you is actually feeling guilty about okay. his team you know and letting the team down and being out injured it's just like a really you know you're talking about kind of your emotions that set in after that was that anything you felt I think he's it's it's a hard one. I think for 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 him doing it for the club is probably makes it slightly different. First and foremost, I think he also being he's a he's a club legend. He's our club captain, and he's a massive part of a, the whole club on a daily basis. So he'd be the only one that that would say that because there's nothing for him to feel guilty about. Um, but but I know how much of an influence he has on on players around him. How much he does on on myself and. He probably feels like he could, especially the season we had this year, we didn't really achieve what we wanted to achieve. We finished eighth and yeah, kind of scraped into Europe rather than being in the top four where we were the year before, going all the way to the Prem final and almost winning it. It was it was a bit of a, a step down in performance. And I think I, I definitely do feel like that, that I watch games and think, well, I'd like to think, might be wrong, that I could, could have helped in some way. Um, and I don't know for sure that he would feel like that as well. And I... I that again goes back to, to when I was talking about it earlier that I had to go through a phase where I just forgot that I was was a rugby player. So when I was going to the games to watch the guys, I was just cheering them on as almost as a spectator rather than oh I should be out like there as a fan. because yeah, yeah almost as a fan because because you go to those games and think oh I should be out there I should be out there and you just feel horrible and and sometimes you can't help help that feeling it does just it's so overwhelming but. Yeah, the more you can try and avoid that, the better, really. And I think I will struggle. I did struggle with that more when the fans were back because I love, I love the feeling of playing in front of fans. When it was still an empty stadium, you kind of felt like a bit of a training match. It was, it's a weird, weird environment. But the last couple of games they had of the season with the fans back, so I do think I'll probably struggle more going into the next few weeks. But hopefully, the closer I get to, to playing, it will be it will feel like I'm only weeks away and uh, rather than a mile off. Yeah, every day you're a step closer. That's what you're exactly, going to think. Exactly that. Uh, <laughs> what advice would you give to anyone that does have those overwhelming feelings which you just mentioned and is in a dark place at the moment, just in general? I think I've always tried to be someone that will will talk talk to those around me all the time and I talk a lot to talk a lot to my family talk a lot to my girlfriend and 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 the injured players around me and I think opening up as much as possible to those around you can be can be the most important thing sometimes because 
yeah, you do get these feelings that you just can't can't really help, and and there are times where you feel pretty dark. But if you feel like you're sharing that that with someone else in some way, shape, or form, it it just it just clears your head and and lifts a little bit of that load off off of you, really. And like the last question, because we always ask it, is what's your number one? Fi- I think this is a really hard question to answer, but what's your number one fitness and nutrition tip? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I like that challenging one. Um, <laughs> At the end, I think commitment and consistency to to your goal. Um, for me, I think you can you can have spikes of motivation uh, at times where you 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 wake up and you think, right, today I'm going to go for it. But to achieve what you want to achieve, be it lose lose a few skin folds, be it want to be want to win the World Cup with England. In order to get to that, any of those points, there's a lot of things that you have to do on a consistent basis. Do it regularly and do it well. And I think managing yourself through that period um, to keep bringing the same level of quality and consistent performance um, and attitude to it is what's difficult. And that can be the difference between achieving your goals or not. And I think there's days where you wake up and think, I really don't want to do this today. But those are the days that are important to go and just keep doing what you said you were going to do that day. Tick the box, give it everything and then and then just go back back again the next day. James, I'm really glad that we spent a lot of time talking about kind of mindset and and the mental health aspect of injury, um, which I think is so overwhelming and overarching a lot lot of the time rather than just focusing on the science side of it. Yeah, I I think we should thank Jack again, actually, because he he was so open in sharing his story. I'm not sure many of the listeners, certainly those who have never worked in professional sport before, fully appreciate the emotional journey and, and roller coaster that athletes go on when they get injured. We we often think they're robots. They get injured, they deal with it, they come back and play. But of course in the middle there is so much noise and so much messiness and it really is an emotional journey. I remember many times athletes breaking down in tears to me when they were injured. And what I would say, Charlie, is as sports scientists, quite often we go off and we work on our own little silos. But when an athlete gets injured, I often find that everyone in the backroom staff, the physios, the psychologists, the strength and conditioning coaches, the nutritionists, that's the one time in my experience where there truly is collaboration. Everyone comes together and everyone inputs to the plan and everyone does their best to get the athlete back on the on the playing field as fast as possible. Yeah, what's it like when you're working with an injured athlete? Because I can imagine there's a lot of emotions that come into play for you as well, watching their, their frustration and that push and pull between holding back and then them almost kind of having the same mindset before they're injured, but their body's not there. Yeah, it, it can be quite challenging, Charlie, because... You can get close to athletes when they're injured. And I often found that that's when relationships really developed because you spent a lot of time together. And I think as sports scientists and and just anyone doing a professional role, we have to be very careful that the professional line doesn't get crossed. Because if if you start becoming too friendly, as opposed to having your professional responsibility, sometimes you can make bad decisions. You can push people too much. You can withdraw too much. So I actually really enjoyed working with injured athletes because I thought the relationships got better and we taught them a lot. But you do have to be careful not to blur the lines as well. That's a really interesting point because I can also imagine you have to be careful where there's not a a reliance where 
they just become entirely reliant on you. James, you've brought on an absolutely fantastic expert for for this next section to really start to break down the science side of things. Professor Keith Barr. Keith is a professor of molecular exercise physiology at the University of California, Davis. Over the last 15 years, Keith's worked with elite athletes as the scientific advisor to Chelsea Football Club, USA Track and Field, and Leicester Tigers Rugby, just to name a few. Keith's current work is focused on how loading and nutrition alter tendon, ligament, health and performance. As you'll see, we'll discuss this a lot. Keith, we're really chuffed to have you on. Very Yorkshire word there, which means pleased. (laughs) Um, And I think probably the best place to start is if you can describe to us different types of injuries and exactly like for example what's a soft tissue injury what's a more serious injury I think maybe if you can give us a little bit of an overview first that'd be great sure so so basically when we look at it most athletes the the number one issue that they're going to have are the, what we call these soft tissue injuries and what that means is sprains strains and tears and that could be of tendon ligament or muscle and so those are your soft tissues so, so those are the primary things. So in, in Premier League football, you're looking at about 70% of all of the injuries are going to be one of those three. If you're looking at other sports, it's very, very similar. You're getting this really, really high level of these soft tissue injuries, muscle, tendon, and, and ligament. And that's comprising the majority of what you're going to see as an athlete. Um, you are going to get some hard tissue injuries. So that means it's going to be injuries to the bone as well. But those are going to be either dramatic contact injuries, or they're going to be chronic overuse injuries. So that means stress fractures or direct breaks that you can get. But the most common things we're going to get are strains, sprains, and tears. That's going to happen to our tendons, ligaments, our muscles, and to some degree, our cartilage as well. And so that's really what a lot of athletes are going to be dealing with throughout their career. I just want to um, be specific on something because I know we have a lot of listeners that are into triathlon, running and cycling. Um, And I know you mentioned football there. So what tends to be quite specific to that group of people? There we're looking at two different things. The cyclists aren't going to have the same types of injuries that the runners are going to have. And that's largely because the runners are going to have a lot more of what we call mechanical fatigue. And that means every time they hit the ground, they're hitting the ground with about two to three times their body weight. They're doing that 180 times a minute that's a huge mechanical impact force on their skeletal system. And so what you're going to get a lot of in runners is you're going to get a lot of either tendinopathies. So they, because this is somebody who's trying to absorb the force using their tendons and muscles, or you're going to get these stress fractures or bone issues. And, and those bone issues are the things that a lot of, a lot of elite athletes especially are going to be dealing with because the volume of load is going to be as high as they can in order to maintain that kind of high high level performance. But as you get more and more volume, there's more and more of this mechanical load on your, on your skeletal system. And there's a greater chance that your system is going to get a little bit out of whack and you're going to develop either a stress reaction, a stress fracture, or, or a complete fracture. Something I was always taught, see if I'm right or not, you can dispel it if not, um, was that with our tendons and ligaments um maybe i'm shouldn't be putting them in one bracket but that they're going to be as strong as we train them absolutely it's just like every other system in our body our tendons and ligaments a lot of people at least in the old days thought it was this just old old rope like 
tissue that held everything together. And it really didn't change from the time you were maybe 17, 18 years old until you were until you were into your 70s, 80s, 90s. And what we're what we've learned over the last probably five to 10 years is that our tendons and ligaments are really actually quite dynamic tissues. And they seem to grow almost like a tree where the core of the tree kind of stays the same. But as we load more and more, we're going to add rings to the outside of the tree and make it stiffer and stronger. But if we do go through periods of inactivity, we can lose those outer rings. So it's a little bit different than, than what we would expect in a tree. You don't see a tree you know, getting bigger and smaller, but that's kind of what happens with our tendons and ligaments. And there's actually a really cool article that came out um, about a year and a half ago that showed that female soccer players over a season, over an eight month season, their ACL actually got bigger during the season, over that eight month period. And so what that tells us is that in short periods of time, these connective tissues can get bigger and stronger, they can become more resilient, and that after periods of inactivity, we're going to get into a position where they become more at risk for injury or failure. So the best example of this happened um, in, in 2011, almost 10 years ago now in the NFL. They had, a, they had a player strike. So what they did is they, the players weren't allowed to go into the facilities and they weren't allowed to train. And then they signed an agreement. Everybody went back to work. And so they started immediately in training. And what happened is they had within the first two weeks of training, they had, a, I think it was either nine or 11 Achilles tendon ruptures. Because what was happening is that they were resting on the couch. The tendons were getting smaller. You know, we all kind of continue to eat when we're on the couch. And so when you do that, that tissue gets a little bit stiffer as well. And so now they've got a small tissue that's stiff, and that's what we call brittle. And so when you go to load it now, it pulls really quickly and you can you can tear them really easily. And so exactly what you said, if you're not exercising a lot, those tendons and ligaments are going to get smaller, they're going to get more stiff, and that means they're going to get brittle. And so that means when you come back to training you're going to be at a greater risk for injuring either the tendon or potentially the muscle that it's connected to. Yeah, no, I think that's great, Keith, the way that you've opened the podcast there, because I believe that a lot of sports scientists have traditionally focused on muscle and neglected other tissues. And I think what we're learning, certainly, as you said, in the last five, 10 years and throughout this podcast, we've frequently talked about other tissues like the gut like the brain um, and you've just reminded and hopefully taught everyone else who hasn't heard this concept before that tendons and ligaments are just as plastic as muscle and we should also be focusing on how to train our tendons and ligaments and I'm not sure many sports scientists in the past truly appreciated that but I think the landscape is definitely changing. Absolutely and it's really important because the way that we train our tendons ligaments and connective tissues is actually different than the way that we chain our muscle and our heart. So when we go out, as you said, Charlie, a lot of your listeners are cyclists or runners. They go out and they do these really long distances, they long sessions, because especially the cyclists, they can go out and, and cycle for ages and ages, but they don't necessarily want to go super hard. And But they'll go out for a really long session. Well, our tendons and ligaments only really get a signal for about 10 minutes. After that 10 minutes, there, I, I explain it like I have a 13-year-old daughter. If I try and explain a lot of things to her, she'll, she'll shut me out really kind of quickly. So I have to get <laughs> the important stuff really right at the front. 
tendons and ligaments are the same way. They, they start turning off really quickly to the signals that you're giving them. And it takes a while before they, they're ready for another signal, another lesson. So the way that we train tendons and ligaments is in these short bouts of activity. So five to 10 minutes where we're trying to load them specifically. Most of our training is done in these longer sessions. And so when we're starting to consider this tissue as a dynamic tissue, and especially when we're trying to prevent injury, we're having to think about the possibility of adding in short connective tissue sessions that are really designed to protect our tendons, ligaments, and bones. So if that's the case then, which I was like, wow, okay, that's very short compared to I think the, what the majority of us do. What does that look like then? What should we be doing? How do we train them like that then? So one of the examples that I give is, is one of the runners that, that we work with through coaches here had a really long history of stress fractures, stress fracture after stress fracture. And, and what we did is we didn't decrease their training because they still need to train at the same level to be competitive. But what we did is when they were doing one a day sessions, so they were doing a session in the afternoon, what we would do is we would add a session in the morning and that session in the morning would be a short session. We would add, because they were a runner, we could add it as six minutes of jump rope. So all they're gonna do is they're gonna jump rope for a short period of time and all that's going to do is it's going to load the musculoskeletal system. It's going to load her, her tendons, her ligaments, and her bones that are the ones that are, she's using during her running. But it's not going to be a long session. It's just designed to give impact force to those tissues for that period of time to give the cells within those tissues a signal that, oh, we need to, we need to do our job. We need to make collagen. We need to... You know, if it's the bone, we need to accumulate more bone uh, mineral. And the reason that we do that in the smallest dose, what we're looking for is what we call the minimal effective dose. And there's a beautiful study in, in, from a Japanese group where they actually took um, teenage girls and they had them jump as high as they could four times, just four times. They did that three times a week. And what they saw is their bone mineral density went up. These tissues don't need much load but they need to get that short period of loading and they need to get it relatively frequently. Is, is there any specific time of day, Keith, or in proximity to your main training session when you should be doing that? I would presume that it's like a prehab before your main session rather than afterwards. Well, so what we would do is we're trying to get it a good amount of time away. So, so the, the research shows that optimal is going to be six to eight hours away from your training. So if you're going to do a long session and say you're going to go out for an hour run, what we're going to do is if you're doing that in the afternoon, we're going to go six to eight hours before. But if you're a morning trainer and you're going to do the majority of your work, like most of us here in, in Northern California, we get out and we train early because right now it's 12 degrees. This afternoon will be 35. So if I wait until the afternoon, I'm not going to run. So I'm going to run in the morning. And that what that means is my protective session, I'm going to do it in the afternoon. That's interesting as well, because I, I do it with a training session. I don't do it separate, so I need to, I think the majority of us don't. Again, there's nothing wrong with doing it all as one session, but what we're trying to do when we say it's an, it's an optimal, minimal effective dose is we're just trying to load that specific system. That system, as I said, turns off to these exercise signals faster than our muscle and our heart do. The longer we run the cycle swim, the, the longer the stimulus for our heart and our skeletal muscle is to adapt. But that's not true for our tendons, ligaments, and bones. 
where does strength training come into this? Because um, one of the things I always say is um, I do a lot of endurance, but I also strength train and I have done since I was probably about 13 years old. And I always think that's done me in such good stead in terms of injury prevention. Absolutely. So, so one of the things that we say that I always tell athletes and coaches is that we get muscle pulls when the tendon is stiffer than the muscle is strong. Because when we're going out, we're going to run and we're going to see this in basically two weeks time here. And you're going to look at the men's 200 meters is, is the primary place, but the men's 400 as well. And what's going to happen is people are going to, the, the guys are going to start getting out there. They're going to start going. And then kind of in the back end of this, what they're going to do is they're going to pull up with a hamstring pull. And what they've been doing over the last few weeks and months is they've been trying to peak their performance. And that means all fast movements and a fast movement by definition means low load. So the muscle is not getting a stimulus to be big and strong. The tendon is getting lots of stimulus to be stiff. And over time, what's happening is that tendon is becoming stiffer than the muscle is strong. What they're going to do is they're going to take a little bit longer stride as they get a little bit more tired. They're going to hit the ground. That hamstring is going to stretch because the tendon is stiff. The hamstring isn't super strong. What's going to happen is that the tendon is not going to stretch. The muscle is going to stretch. And that's when you're going to get these muscle pulls. We see it all the time in football as well. That exact type of thing, especially when somebody gives you a little nudge, you take a longer step, you hit the ground. Now, if your tendon is stiffer than your muscle is strong, you're going to pull that muscle. The reason I say men's 200 and 400, I'm not being sexist. It's because women actually suffer 80% fewer muscle pulls than men. And that's just because their stiffness is lower than men's stiffness. And that's an effect of one of the effects of estrogen. So what is the difference then between male and female injuries? Yeah. So, so what everybody probably knows is that in, in sport, like, like football or like basketball or whichever, a woman is going to have about four to six times more likelihood of having a, a catastrophic ACL rupture. Again, that, ACL is a little bit more lax, but as I just said, they're going to have 80% less likelihood of having a muscle pull. The reason for that is that that our connective tissues are different stiffnesses. So women, they have less stiffness within the tendons and ligaments, and that's a direct effect of estrogen. So we actually did a, a really cool little study where we can grow ligaments in a dish. And when we grow these ligaments in a dish, we can have them going along at at normal estrogen levels, which is about five picograms per milliliter, right before ovulation, there's a spike of estrogen. And this actually is when we see about three days later, you'd see the most um, incidence of ACL ruptures in women. And what we did is we just modeled that by adding estrogen, high levels of estrogen for two days. And what you see is the tendons actually become stretchier. And the reason for that is that the, the estrogen is actually directly inhibiting an enzyme, which is necessary to add these little crosslinks to the collagen molecules within the tendon. And what that means is those crosslinks make the tendon stiffer. And so because estrogen is coming in and blocking that enzyme, now what you get is a decrease in stiffness. Makes evolutionary sense because women have to be able to, they have to be able to give birth. And in order for that to happen, you need to have a lot more laxity in, in ligaments to allow that to pass. The, the issue is that when you're talking about a performance athlete, 
A decrease in ligament stiffness means there's more joint mobility. And the more joint mobility there is, the more likely you are to rupture a ligament. But on the other hand, the stiffness, remember what we said caused the muscle pull was the tendon is stiffer than the muscle is strong. If the tendon is less stiff because of estrogen, there's much less likelihood of pulling a muscle, of having that muscle injury. And so, so that's where we can, we can actually start coming in and start doing little things to manipulate the stiffness of the ligaments based on kind of, we can use a little bit of nutrition, we can do other things to try and mitigate some of the stiffness effects that are happening in, in female athletes. Yeah, I, I think a good point to make here, quite often when athletes get injured, we think about, right, what should we do now that they're injured? But actually the, the conversation should be, what should we do before? To reduce the injury risk and a lot of it in my experience is quite simple and Keith has mentioned that sometimes it's just changing the training but I would say that a lot of athletes across the board don't incorporate strength training enough and if they did incorporate more strength training then that balance between tendon and ligaments and muscle strength would probably even out a lot more. It reminds me going back to we had Paula Radcliffe on the podcast um, and she was very open talking about the role of strength training in her career. We had Adam Peaty training every day, of course, in heavy sessions in the gym. And I think those top, top class athletes do really buy into the role of strength training and injury prevention. And I think that's a lesson that we could all take away across the board. What about from a nutrition point of view? I think you've mentioned it as well, James, a few times, but I've heard you, Keith, say the word collagen multiple times in this conversation so far. How does that work? Can you, should you take collagen? Like, you know, what should well, you be doing from that sense point of view? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so just as far as normal daily training, we still, you know, for how much collagen gets sold at the, at the markets, there's very, very little research. And we've done, you know, for, for me to say that, I've done a bunch of the research, but the truth is there's a paper that just came out not too long ago from Luke Van Loon's lab that showed that if you just take in overnight protein, that you actually increase muscle connective tissue synthesis. And that was a, that was a, a casein-based protein. So, so we don't know that it has to be dietary collagen that we're using. The important thing to remember is that collagen is the most common protein in your body. One of the reasons that we get things like the fem the old school female athlete triad, which was that you are losing bone mass as you were in caloric deficit. Now we call it REDS. So what happens there is as your body gets lower in its caloric balance, so you're in a caloric deficit, if you've got the number one protein that you make in your body is collagen, and there's a whole bunch of things that we actually have in each of our cells that actually let us synthesize collagen. There's one protein whose only job is to synthesize collagen type one. It goes in and it regulates how much collagen you make. And so if you've got this whole system, you're in a caloric deficit. One of the easiest things to, to kind of shut down is your production of collagen. And that's why a lot of people get decreases in bone strength when they're in a caloric deficit. You get a lot of these things because it's one of the easiest proteins to shut down. Just And it has a big effect on overall energy balance within the body. So to start with nutrition with collagen, you have to be in relatively good balance in order to synthesize these this, this molecule, we think. The second thing is 
what are the limitations to making collagen? It's a simple protein. It, it's made up of basically two primary amino acids. So one third of the protein is glycine and one third of the protein is proline. And so glycine is not an essential amino acid normally. And proline, it is, it's not necessarily a difficult one to get in the diet. So when we're looking at that protein, it becomes difficult for us to say, oh, well, all you have to do is take dietary collagen and you're going to have this great effect. Well, we don't know for sure that dietary protein is better than whey protein, for example. And, you know, I, I listened to Stu on your program and, you know, Stu is great about talking about the, a complete protein, a high quality protein. Well, collagen is a, not a complete protein. It's a low quality protein. And so if you're trying to build muscle, collagen is not the protein that you want. There's no question about that in my mind. When you're in certain situations, if you're a growing individual, if you're training at a high level, if you're in a caloric deficit, we think that having some dietary collagen is good because it's providing extra glycine and proline, which we think in those situations can become conditionally essential amino acids. And what that means is that normally they're not essential, but in certain situations, you need a higher amount of them. And so if you provide that higher amount, you're going to be able to adapt better. And there's really nice research out of Sao Paulo in Brazil where they, where they injured the, the tendons of animals, and then they just increased the glycine in their diet. And what they found is they those animals recovered faster if they had more glycine. And so there is some evidence that adding, say, some of these dietary collagen, the amino acids you get from dietary collagen could be beneficial to our, our tendons and ligaments and bones. Yeah. And I think if you, if you went across most um, sports and most athletes in the, the modern era, Charlie, certainly in the last few years, Collagen is a, a form of protein that most athletes are now supplementing with. Um, and anecdotally, I think a lot of guys and girls are, are reporting positive experiences with it. So for sure, there'll be a lot more research in the next five to 10 years on this area. So away from collagen, what about like food types? Is there anything we can do to prevent injury um, or that helps us, you know, post-injury as well in terms of our nutrition? Absolutely. So... I love the way that Jenny Pierce put it, um, where she, when she was at the English Institute of Sport as the head of nutrition, she said she wanted people to have uh, she, to have their hyena diet, where they ate all of the bits of the meat that was there. They ate everything because all of that stuff that people don't like to eat, all of the chewy bits in the in the meats, all of that's actually what you need to consume. For, for your tendons and ligaments. Because that's, if you don't want to take in a dietary collagen, if you're eating meat, that's going to be totally fine. The issue for a lot of athletes, especially now, is as veganism and, and vegetarianism becomes a, a much more prevalent component of an athlete's diet, now what we're seeing is a lot of athletes who are not taking in those, those types of amino acids. And Collagen is a protein that's only made in animal tissues. So especially certain, there are certain conditional amino acids there that are, that are modified, hydroxyproline, hydroxylysine. You'd only really see that in animal tissues. So, so if we have an athlete who's vegetarian or vegan, they have to be really good about their nutrition in order to not find themselves in an increased risk for injury. We do see Again, as James was saying, anecdotally, what we've seen is that as people change their diet, we've seen people who are eating clean where they stop eating meat. And what tends to happen is that 
after about six months or so, their injury rates coming up quite a bit. And so we're seeing that as, as a potential red flag to people. Um, and so, so that's one condition to, to consider nutritionally as far as, 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 far as injury um, prevention is just to consider that if you've got an athlete who's vegetarian or vegan, that maybe they need to add something into their diet in order to make them more robust. There are other things that, that we can do to improve these tissues. And one of them is, is probably the easiest one for me to, to get athletes to do, and that's to, to add in natural cocoa. So to add in natural chocolates. So by natural, I mean that haven't been Dutch processed. All right, so not like hot chocolate cocoa. Absolutely hot chocolate cocoa. Oh yes, hot chocolate cocoa. Yeah. Come and on. So as long <laughs> I as love a hot chocolate. <laughs> As long as it's not Dutch processed, so the Dutch processing or the alkalization, it kills it kills the polyphenols within there. Okay, what's that mean though? Like for us so people that don't know store, what that means. <laughs> yeah, so if you go to the store, there's going to be cho- there's going to be cocoa that's that just says natural cocoa, and that just means that if you open it up, it's kind of grayish brown. And then if you look at the Dutch processed stuff, oh, it looks beautiful. It's dark, dark brown. It's this great dark chocolate color. That's what a lot of chefs use. It's what a lot of cooks use to make it look beautiful. But by doing that alkalization, you kill the polyphenols within the chocolate. And that actually modifies it as its ability to, you know, cause the benefits that we're looking for. I've written cocoa on my notepad. Go and buy some. (laughs) As As a final question, what would your number one rule be in terms of training and nutrition advice for injury? Um, either you can either pick or maybe you can give us one of both for injury to reduce injury risk and then one for rehabilitation. Yeah. So, so the number one rule I would have to reduce injury risk is going to be to, to strength train first of all. And then as James was saying, as, as some of your past guests have said, really dial in the, the protein component of the, of the diet, because that's your foundation. You're building upon that, that, that protein foundation. Because everything that we're talking about is these mechanical issues and in order and all of that mechanical fatigue from those impact forces, you need the protein to fix those mechanical injuries. So that's the first thing is to is to really strength train with a heavy weight before you get injured. The second thing is that if you do get injured, now what you're going to do is you're going to take advantage of these short periods of activity. And that w- that's what we're talking about. If you're in a situation where you, where you can't train, you can't train that area. So if you've got, a, if you've got an ACL, for example, or, or as Jack does, a, an MCL, now what you're going to do is you're not going to necessarily be able to train the legs as much. Train the upper body heavy and strong as uh, already. We did a study where we showed that if we had guys come into the gym, took their blood before and after they did heavy, heavy strength training exercise, and we put that onto our little engineered ligaments, the blood that we got from them before made small, weak ligaments, and the blood that we got from them after they did strength training made bigger, stronger ligaments. So there's something that our, our tendons and ligaments and muscles produce globally that's actually going to help that tissue regenerate as well. So don't stop training your upper body if your lower body's injured and then do as much um, activity with that leg or with that injured part as you can and have it in these short bouts. So what we would do is we would get up first thing in the morning. And if what Jack's got to do is he's got to load, he's got to do some range of movement. He's going to have some exercises that physio's given him. We're going to have him do that for five to 10 minutes in the morning. 
We're going to have him rest until noon, five to 10 minutes at noon. That's that six hour period. And then we're going to have him go end of the day, six to eight hours later. So he's got three periods of activity throughout the day. And then what we would do is about an hour before one of those, we would have him take about 15 grams of hydrolyzed collagen. We just give it to them in, in orange juice or in something that has about 50 milligrams of vitamin C because the vitamin C is essential for collagen synthesis as well. So we're gonna give that an hour before we're gonna do at least one of those three sessions because what that's going to do is when that's gonna give all of the amino acids you need to make collagen are gonna be really high around the tissue when you start to load. Our tendons and ligaments aren't like our muscles. Our muscles have great blood flow. Our tendons and ligaments have really poor blood flow. The way they get most of their nutrients is when they, we pull on them, we stretch them, that's gonna squeeze out all the liquid within it. And then as we relax, that's gonna suck liquid in from the, from the environment. That fluid that comes in is gonna provide all of the nutrients for, those, for the cells within that tissue. So if we provide our dietary collagen or vitamin C before we do our specific training, as we pull on that tendon or ligament, we squeeze out the liquid. Now, as it brings in new liquid, it's going to be enriched in vitamin C and all of the amino acids that they've just digested. So now they'll be able to use all of those building blocks to make that tissue bigger, stronger, faster. Yeah, I think that's some great advice. It goes back to nu nutrient timing, but how the timing of when we eat and what we eat can sometimes make more of a, an impact. I just wanted to say from my perspective that injury to me is very similar to inactivity. Now to put that into context, some of my favorite studies in the literature, I've never done any of these studies by the way, but some of my favorite ones are the bed rest studies where they put people in bed for several weeks or they do reduced step count. So rather than doing your 10,000 steps per day, they ask people to reduce their step counts to 2,000 steps per day. And the changes that you induce in your body within seven days are frightening. You lose your cardiovascular fitness, you lose um, some muscle mass, you lose strength. And maybe if we frame it like that to people listening today, it might make them exercise more frequently than just one session a week because inactivity and injury can quite often induce the same physiological effects on the body. And I think that's quite frightening. Actually, every time I look at those studies, it makes me want to go out and do some more training again. Absolutely. I, I remember that if you ever see or listen to Luke Van Loon, he'll tell you these great stories. And one of the things that he did is he had a student taking a study where they were actually taking people in a coma and they were watching their muscle mass. And or they were doing the casting studies where they would cast the knee and they would watch the quadricep. And so they said, OK, they're losing this much muscle mass. And so what he did is he had his graduate student go out to the butcher and get that much meat so that he could put it onto a, a cutting board so that you could see how much you had lost in five days. And you had lost about three kilos of muscle in in those five days that they did this short study. You don't really appreciate three kilos, but then you see it as steak on a, on a cutting board and you're like, oh, that's a lot of steak that we've just lost there. Mm -hmm. And that's really what you're losing from, from these muscles within very, very short periods of time. I'll pause for a second because um, I can relate, as you both know, to what you just said in terms of the coma. And I just was sat there almost reflecting. And for the listeners that don't know, five years coming up to five years ago, I was sedentary, I was in a coma and I was critically ill and nearly lost my life. But then 
actually, and I do remember a doctor saying to me, like your ones I started to, you know, after about three months where they were thinking about sending me back to England because I wasn't in England and do my rehabilitation here. And he said to me, like the consultant, you know, you've got your hardest battle to come. And I was like, no way. You don't know what I've just been through, like in the coma, fighting for my life. And boy, was he right. Because of everything you've just said, and both of you, that I just completely didn't recognize myself because I'd lost, you know, not not just, not in the way I looked, but in the way I felt and my ability and things that I was able to do, which I just took for granted. And it took me so long to be able to just be able to walk again. Then it took me like another year to be able to, like run again and that's something that I'm just I just take for granted even now actually despite what I've gone through so and that was because I was obviously I was ill but I had that in inactivity and didn't use my muscle for so long and then going to the ligament tendon side of things that's what I also had problems with because that's where I learned you know the amazing one of the amazing guys that helped me rehab was I I just my tendons just had, there's just nothing. And my, you know, my, I remember my Achilles tendon just hurt and ate so badly just from walking because, you know, it had no, no stimulus and no exercise or anything. Absolutely. So one of the things that we tell athletes classically is that when you injure yourself, it's pressure, ice, elevate and rest or rice, which is the rest, ice, compress and elevate. That's such a bad thing because all we're doing with the rest is we're, we're prolonging it. We're making things worse. So what I've found is that if you can get the, the athlete moving almost from the second that the injury occurs, they're going to have a much faster return to play. And there's a nice paper in the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, um, out of Michael Kerr's group that showed that if you start rehabilitation at day two versus day nine, if you start at day two, you're 25% faster return to play than if you started a week later, because that rest component that everybody says, oh, we need to rest. No, you don't. You need to move it. You need to use it because if you don't continue to move it and use it, what's going to happen is you're going to have to recover not only from the injury, but from that inactivity as well. So the less inactivity that you can do, the better it is. We're loading people post-surgery the same day. James, I almost feel like we could have started a new episode off the back of this last couple of minutes of conversation around inactivity. Can you tell us a a little bit more about how much this affects us? I think we should maybe do an episode on inactivity. Yeah, we we probably should. Um, And actually, Charlie, the last conversation that we had there reminded me back of a lot of work that I did during my PhD days. I was looking at a a group of proteins in muscle called stress proteins. And what happens when you exercise is your muscle makes more of these stress proteins. And then as a result, the next time that you subject muscle to stress, it's more protective. So the stress proteins have offered a prior protection against the subsequent episode of damage. Now, the reason why I'm telling you that story is because it reminds me a lot of what happens in heart tissue, in cardiac tissue. And so traditionally, the advice for people that suffered heart attacks or had coronary artery disease was to almost limit your exercise. But now we know actually that you should exercise as much as you can because that offers protection. Perhaps let me leave you with something to consider. There's lots of research over the years that have shown that if you exercise two to three days before a a cardiac stress, like a heart attack, you'll be more protective and you can recover 
better after that stress. So the practical message really is that if anyone's planning on having a heart attack in the next two or three days, then make sure you exercise one to two days beforehand because you will definitely have a better chance of recovering well. I'll put it in my calendar then. (laughs) It's a great, I mean, it just blows your mind. I'm kind of sat here with my mouth half open thinking, wow. And I think that brings to a point where actually you can do that if you have exercise as a consistent in your life. Yeah, the, the many benefits of physical activity. I think there's this misconception that once you become a trained person, then you're trained. But actually, many of the health benefits from exercise come from the consecutive acute training sessions. So if you train on a Monday, then your body will experience health benefits for the next two or three days. However, if you only train once per week, those health benefits by the time the next week comes have pretty much um, gone. So lots of the effects of training is due to the accumulative effects of consistent daily training sessions or training every couple of days. And I think that's a real point that our listeners should really take away. Yeah, that regular activity. I think that's a really good point to finish on, James. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode. Go out and do some activity. (laughs) Uh, Learn more about our brands by visiting sciencesport.com and phd.com while you're waiting for the next episode. And if you enjoyed this one, we would, of course, love a review. We really like to hear what you think. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Bye.